Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I have the distinct pleasure today of interviewing Dr. Megan McKenzie about her book titled Good Soldiers Don't Rape, The Stories We Tell About Military Sexual Violence, published by Cambridge University Press. This is, I think, an interesting book and a very important book to help us understand um, why sexual violence is such a problem within so many, um, particularly Western militaries. The book focuses on the US, Canada and Australia to help us understand like, what's going on with this, um, what's actually happening, how people are talking about it, how these things go together to create um, theories around sexual violence um, that... <laughs> probably aren't necessarily that helpful. So this is a really useful book, I think, um, for helping us understand all sorts of things about militaries, about gender, about feminism. So Megan, thank you so much for being with us to tell us all about it. Thanks. It's great to be here. Before we get into your book, would you mind giving us a bit of an introduction to yourself and explaining what brought you to this project? Yeah. So my name is Megan McKenzie. My pronouns are she, her. Um, I am the Simons Chair in International Law and Human Security at Simon Fraser University um, in Vancouver. Um, I'm speaking to you from Indigenous lands, from the lands of the Coast Salish peoples. Um, and so, yeah, what brought me to, um, write this book, essentially I've been looking at and doing research on military culture for over a decade now. And when I was starting, um, looking originally at issues around, um, you know, women in combat and I've done research on military suicide, you know, various issues, essentially sexual violence in the military was, you know, very much an ever-present theme. It was the elephant in the room in every single discussion. Almost every woman I've ever spoken to who has served um, has either experienced sexual violence or supported um, fellow service members dealing with sexual violence. And I felt like, you know, I, I, I resisted writing the book, to be honest, or writing on this topic for, for a long time, because I felt like it was just such an important issue and sort of felt underqualified. Um, but essentially, I, I sort of felt compelled to address um, the issue in the way that I knew how, which was to approach it through an analysis of, of media coverage. So tell us about that approach. Why, why do you think that doing approaching this topic through an analysis of media coverage is particularly sort of helpful for exploring this topic? Yeah, well, I think, um, so I'll talk about the limitations for me of other approaches. I mean, I think that, of course, there's a, a, a va- very valid approach where you could, uh, you could study this topic or, or, or bring through victim testimonies. And I really felt conflicted about that approach. And I talk about it in my introduction, just around the challenge of, um, you know, doing service to victims' stories. And I just didn't feel qualified to, to approach the topic that way. 
Um, and instead, I guess the, the main puzzle I grapple with in this um, book that I think media coverage helps me with is really how it's possible that um, militaries remain the most trusted public institution in most Western countries, including Canada, including the UK, including the US, despite evidence of ongoing um, you know, crisis and ongoing scandals when it comes to not just sexual violence, but when it comes to war crimes, when it comes to hazing and bullying and other um, sort of, you know, systematic evidence of dysfunction. So for me, I was interested in, you know, what are the public conversations? How are we making sense of ongoing evidence of sexual violence in the military? So I I thought uh, media coverage would be the best place to go for that, to sort of look at how is this issue being covered and how is it possible to sort of consistently represent um, evidence of sexual violence, especially high, pro, you know, um, outstanding cases as, as if they're scandals, even though, you know, actually rates of sexual violence within militaries have been sort of high and increasing and, and consistent over the last few decades. So um, I wanted to understand how do we, how is the media making sense of it? How is, um, how are militaries responding to evidence of sexual violence? Um, and so, yeah, the media for me was, was the best place to look. It's, it's really the public's, um, main tool for getting information about the military. You know, there's such a divide, a separation between the military and civilian world. And so the media is really, um, I think the best place to, to look for that. Mm, thank you. I think that makes a lot of sense and helps us now dive into your analysis. So one of the places I'd like to start is um, a term you use, military exceptionalism. Can you take us through what you mean by this term and why it's helpful for understanding this problem? Yeah, so military exceptionalism is really the core concept that I develop in the book. And really, it's kind of captures the this paradox, um, the paradoxical way that we look at the military as both, um, you know, honorable and disciplined, but also um, capable of acts of, of um, indiscipline. So it helps me understand why, for example, um, consistently, um, acts like war crimes or sexual violence are presented as sort of, um, unfortunate, but, um, but natural byproducts of an otherwise honorable, um, uh, system. So we think of military exceptionalism as not just this way that we see the military as unique and a unique workplace, but how that idea of military exceptionalism kind of lets service members off the hook for persistent evidence of dysfunction. And I really rely on Shireen Razak's work here to help us um, sort of look at how sometimes actually acts of indiscipline, so sexual violence or even uh, war crimes, are sort of seen as natural um, signs of soldiers sort of letting off steam or the natural byproducts of the stress of being a service member. Um, so I, I sort of developed that concept throughout the book. Mm. And therefore, that's why we're starting with it so that you can develop it over the course of the interview as well. Um, I was really curious, I think, coming in to see what similarities we might find across the media coverage, given that 
in some ways, the US, Canada, and Australia are really similar in terms of how the military is treated, but also they're like, you know, three different countries um, and have had three very different sort of military histories and involvements in different conflicts. So I was kind of wondering whether there'd be sort of any overarching similarities or whether, well, actually, I don't know anything about this topic. Maybe that's completely off the mark. Um, But I read in the book that you do identify sort of three meta-narratives that come up in each of the cases and even across time. So could you introduce us to these three meta-narratives? Yeah. So essentially what I do in the book is look at 30 years of media coverage in these three case countries. And, you know, I was looking for themes. I was looking for, you know, common language, different tools. But I was also, you know, as you so say, I was really looking for what are the what are the stories that are being told consistently? And there are unique stories to each each of the case countries, the US, Canada and Australia, but there are three sort of overarching sort of, and when I say stories, I'm saying, I'm really referring to um, how sexual violence in the military is being made sense of what is sort of being naturalized in in a particular article and a particular um, series of articles. So the three kind of meta narratives that I, I found, um, the first one is really this story that sexual violence is a natural, if unfortunate, kind of byproduct of military culture. And this is this idea that, you know, if we want to have tough, ready for combat soldiers, inevitably, we're going to have a group of men that may commit types of violence that may sort of um, explode or may find it difficult to contain that um, exceptional energy. And, um, this is a different version of boys will be boys. I guess it's a version of soldiers will be soldiers. And it really, again, touches on that idea of military exceptionalism. It's this idea that, you know, to have good soldiers, um, we, we can expect or we should normalize a certain level of dysfunction in the military that includes sexual violence. Um, so that's the first one. Um, the second is sort of this meta narrative that you know, basically women who, who join um, defense forces are kind of putting themselves at risk. You know, sort of there was a consistent kind of questioning of why would women want to be there and women who are, are there are going to be isolated, are going to be vulnerable, and they should know what they're getting into. And in, in some ways, this puts the pressure on or, or the responsibility on women um, for joining the service and, you know, kind of presents women as the problem and not men that sort of, we didn't have sexual violence before women were, um, you know, in, in such high numbers in, in defense forces. And, and also again, reinforces this idea that men can't be expected to control themselves uh, around women. And then the last kind of meta um, narrative, and again, this sort of goes back to this concept of uh, military exceptionalism, is is really the message that only the military uh, and military leaders know how to handle the problem of sexual violence. So it sort of puts, you know, public um, questions or reactions to sexual violence as if they're sort of overreaction, maybe even hysterical. 
and really reinforces this idea that, you know, we have it covered, that the military is best placed to deal with the sort of exceptional workplace environment. Hmm. Very interesting that those are what's consistent over space and time. Um, and I think it's kind of the time point I'd love to ask you a bit more about. Um, was there a pattern or cycle um, that this 30 years of analysis, I mean, that's just a massive amount to analyze. First off, congratulations um, for getting through all of that. Uh, but were there any sort of patterns or cycles that you found on these topics? Yeah, so across the three cases, there's a really clear pattern. And the, the pattern is that we basically pay no attention to this issue <laughs> publicly until there is a scandal. And each of the case countries, and I'm sure in the UK, you know, there's different um, cases come to mind. And, and, and for whatever reason, there'll, there'll be a high profile case. And it's usually high profile because of the exceptional circumstances, because it involves a senior member of the defense forces. Some, some element of the case makes it exceptional. Um, and usually we have, we see a very, you know, an, an uptake in media coverage on the topic, um, military leaders, and um, sometimes even the government, depending on, on how high profile the scandal is making statements of zero tolerance and making new commitments, sometimes um, commitments to policy change. And then um, we go back to almost no attention to this issue. So if you look at media coverage over time in the three countries, you sort of see these dramatic spikes in numbers of articles focused on this topic. And they really center on, on single um, scandals. And what's interesting about that is, you know, statistics and, and the, the rates of sexual violence are very consistent across these 30 years. So even when um, sexual violence stays high over time, the public really doesn't pay attention to this issue and, until there's something particularly scandalous about it. Hmm. Until there's something particularly scandalous about it, which is really interesting um, because kind of what counts as a scandal, what what counts as a problem is an issue that you talk about in the book. So can you tell us about some of the problems that we have when it comes to kind of defining like how big a problem is this? How frequently does it happen? We, we, we don't even have that data. Why not? Well, I think it's because military institutions are, are have historically been um, terrible at collecting data on sexual violence. So um, Australia and Canada really didn't even begin to collect useful data in Canada until around, you know, not until 2015 in Australia, it was sort of around 2011. Um, and in the past, you know, in Australia, for example, sexual violence was sort of um, any incidents of sexual violence was sort of captured in a broader um, category of misconduct. So being drunk on post or other kinds of misconduct were all <laughs> um, collected together. So we, we really didn't have um, effective data. Um, and the uh, defense forces have collected data differently year to year, which makes it difficult to compare and to see trends. 
Um, we also have the problem of uh, victims within the service being reluctant to come forward. So even when we have incident reports, we know from research that um, it's likely that 80% of victims do not come forward at all. So even for the incident reports that we do have uh, in the more recent years, they're very likely to be highly um, underrepresentative of actual um, numbers of, of incidents of sexual violence. So it's very hard to understand um, the problem. That being said, we, we do have enough evidence to know that it's a significant problem. So for example, one in four service members in Australia report experiencing some form of sexual violence. Um, in Canada, we've just had you know, three years of consistent um, problems with um, senior military leaders. We've had 13 senior military leaders, including two um, chief of the defense forces uh, facing allegations of sexual violence and a class action lawsuit around sexual violence in the military that's seen um, 20,000 victims come forward, historic victims come forward. So we know it's a significant problem even with the poor data that we have. Um, and so it is interesting with all of that um, to, to sort of uh, grapple with which cases become seen as significant. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, and I, I, think, I think we have enough of an idea of kind of what the problem is and how the cases go together in a sense to start going into some of the detail um, for each of the countries. So Could you tell us um, about what some of the consistent stories are around military sexual violence, specifically in the U.S. media? And I am asking about the U.S. first, because that's the first case study you go into in the book. Why did you put it first? Yeah, I mean... I, I'm really clear in the in the U.S. case that what's interesting about U.S. media coverage is that essentially U.S. media coverage has much more of a global impact than of than the Canadian media coverage or Australian. We know that, for example, the New York Times is a globally uh, read news uh, source has a much wider readership, but also we know that. The stories that we tell about the American military also has global purchase. There's a sort of um, global presence of the U.S. military, but also the sort of public, uh, you know, the the pop culture representations and the 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 popular narratives around the U.S. military are much more global. That's we we see movies about the U.S. military that have have an international um, impact. So really, the stories we tell about the U.S. military um, are global in a way that actually other um, militaries, you know, we we can't say the same thing. So I put it first because I do think that what's happening in the U.S. has an impact. Um, beyond its borders. And I talk about that, um, how some of the the sort of, you know, major cases definitely impacted media coverage in other countries. Um, So, uh, yeah, in terms of the specifics of the US um, case, so one of the, the major scandals um, you know, there, there's some, some major scandals um, that, that shaped I guess, uh, media coverage there. So tailgate happened um, in the early 90s. Uh, 
Um, and it was a huge conference that saw um, dozens of women being sexually assaulted. And it really um, shaped media coverage for a decade. Um, and that kind of the way that that particular scandal was talked about has a legacy. And what's interesting is some of the legacies of that. One of the, I would say, ones that dominates U.S. media narratives um, ongoing is this idea that women lie to ruin good men's honorable careers. And that's a, a narrative that's not really as dominant in other in other countries. We don't see that as much. But this idea that, you know, women in the defense forces are raising allegations potentially to discredit um, someone who has, you know, served their country um, to ruin, you know, or to ruin the reputation of the of the the military more broadly. So that was something that that comes up um, quite consistently. This idea that that these allegations may be designed to sort of harm um, otherwise honorable men. Um, I think in the U.S., the other sort of dominant, and I've written about the Band of Brothers um, narrative and how pervasive is it, it is in the U.S. It's just this idea that actually the band of brothers, um, meaning service members um, and their bonds, that service members will protect themselves and that this bro code um, provides service members with um, sort of a network and a way to get away with sexual violence, that um, service members protect each other, that... um, that there's this code of silence when it comes to court cases. So that kind of, that idea of the impact of the Band of Brothers on sexual violence cases really comes through in in media coverage. Mm. And as you said, has quite a lot of impact um, overseas as well. So thinking about some of the overlap um, moving to Australia, I was really interested in two of the terms you used to describe um, the coverage of military sexual violence paradoxical and contradictory. Can you take us through them in the case of Australia? Yeah, on the I mean the Australia Australian case and you know I lived in Australia for 10 years so I have a, a quite a good sense of um, the media culture and I think you know we we have a sense of um you know the Murdoch media sort of dominance in that country means that the variation in terms of media outlets and the independence of media outlets is really different from other contexts. And so, and also the tone of media coverage is quite different. And there's much more um, uh, casual language, um, colloquialisms, um, slang that's used, the op-eds, um, I would say are very colorful sometimes, I guess that's the word I would use to the, the most appropriate word. Um, I, something that I think would never get published, for example, in, in the Canadian context. <clears throat> so I guess um, the paradoxical nature is just, you know, I think I, I'm may slightly misquote it, but one of the dominant, one of the quotes that I found a military leader <clears throat> excuse me, who was quoted, said, um, uh, with regard to sexual violence, it's pervasive, but it's not a problem. And for me, that kind of captures Australian um, media coverage is this idea that there's this paradox of um, admitting to the problem, but also having this counter narrative of control. And I'm, I, I was never quite sure how that was possible, but you see it come through one of the dominant um, 
narratives in media coverage there is everything's okay. Um, you know, there's this problem, but everything is okay. We're committed to change. Um, and so the other the kind of paradoxical um, meta-narrative in, in the Australian context is this idea that military culture is, is dysfunctional by nature, but it should be respected and it's still admirable. And that sort of this idea that, you know, it's because of the, you know, again, going to military exceptionalism, because of the unique, unique nature of the military, um, sure, we have some, you know, bad apples or signs of dysfunction, but it's, it's actually just part of an otherwise kind of admirable um, and honorable institution. So we just constantly have paradoxes in, in the Australian media context that, that's, that are sustained. Absolutely. Um, and I think that that's a really good sort of really helps make those words um, make a lot of sense. I suppose, I mean, is there anything, one thing that came through in the book is that despite I guess part of the paradox is that there's also sort of some really consistent messages across the different Australian narratives, despite their contradictory nature. Um, can you tell us about kind of the consistency and maybe why it's there? Sure. I, I mean, I one thing I do want to say about the Australian context um, that really st- stands out um, is how much binge drinking is uh, an emphasis in media coverage. And I guess this does go to this paradox in the sense that there's this continual uh, admission that binge drinking is a problem, but also that it's an essential and sort of acceptable part of military culture. And it's often attributed to a sexual assault. In other words, there's this persistent message that binge drinking was the the cause or at least a a rationale um, to help explain an incident of sexual assault. And I guess that's a, um, for me, it really stood out because it sort of points to how acceptable binge drinking has been for, for decades in Australia. And also that it's sort of, you know, again, um, seen as the cause of sexual assault in some way, rather than perpetrators. I think that that, especially with Australia, as you mentioned, the fact that you had lived there for such a long time and could kind of interpret the media culture um, allows an especially interesting level of analysis, as you said, kind of the acceptance of binge drinking. Um, And that's not just something for this one type of story. Similarly, when you look at the Canadian case, um, you draw links between kind of what's happening around the media discourse for stories about military sexual assault specifically but also kind of a wider way that bad things, negative things are discussed um, across the media and in conversation kind of throughout Canadian culture, even on other topics. Can you tell us about sort of what you think is going on here? Yeah. And I think, again, I I do think having lived in both, you know, in, in all three of the case countries, it does give me a sense um, and certainly since I've moved back to Canada after being in Australia for a decade, I have, a, I think, an, a good insight into the difference between the Australian context and the Canadian context. And what I sort of say in the intro to the, the Canadian case study is that 
um, I, I try and summarize the the Canadian approach to problems as sort of this tight-lipped "it's fine" approach, <laughs> and and I think I I do think it's an accurate portrayal of this resistance to sort of messy conversations. You know, while the Australian context we have sort of quite, um, I would say, passionate and and casual op-eds and a very colloquial way of talking about the problem in the Canadian context. There's much more of a, a tight lipped kind of, we've got this, um, uh, approach to, to military sexual violence. Um, and so, um, you have very different narratives. So in, in, in particular, I would say military sexual violence wasn't even identified as a political or as, as a systemic problem um, in media coverage until um, the late 90s. And then really not again until 2015 when there was another sort of series of scandals. So some of the, some of the narratives in Canada... It, again, most of the coverage really focuses on on court cases. It's presented as a complex problem. Sort of, this is this is a difficult problem that's going to take time. Um, and it's another sign- sort of standout um, narrative in the Canadian context is that um, military sexual violence is is a source of embarrassment for an institution. Um, that this is actually the problem of sexual violence is that it embarrasses the institution. That not that it's a problem for for victims necessarily, but that it's it's an institutional sort of shame. Um, so I think those are sort of the different um, you know, the different contexts. It's also a different context in the sense that we've had in in the Canadian in the Canadian context one news magazine, McLean's magazine, that really actually set the tone for the conversations around sexual violence because they they published two massive exposés on on um, systemic sexual violence and and I honestly think that had it not been for that media outlet sort of doing that deep investigative journalism it probably wouldn't have you know there would not have been as much attention to the issue mm. yeah which really says something about kind of the willingness or lack thereof to talk about this, um, which continues with another term that you use in the book that I'm hoping you can tell us about, institutional gaslighting. Yeah, so institutional gaslighting was the the concept I drew from really to help me understand, you know, this idea, again, going to that quote, it's persistent, but not a problem. I mean, for me, that's the the perfect example of institutional gaslighting. And what I mean by gaslighting, of course, when we think of gaslighting, um, we think of this idea of um, efforts to undermine someone's um, ideas or someone's approach. You know, we often think about it in a in a um, intimate relationship uh, context. But um, black feminists have sort of <clears throat> critiqued the use of the concept, which, you know, has often focused on, on individual relationships and, and sort of helped us or encouraged us to think of systemic forms of gaslighting that sort of, um, undermine, um, a vulnerable, uh, vulnerable individuals, um, perceptions of, of their, um, of their situation, but also on, you know, deny systemic forms of, of oppression. And so this, that again, going back to that quote, it's persistent, but it's not a problem. 
you know, kind of um, is a, as a way of the institution gaslighting victims to say this isn't a problem. You know, it is a problem for victims and victims have been trying to, you know, um, raise this as a, as a consistent and persistent problem for, for decades. And so for when institutions come out with statements like we have zero tolerance for sexual violence, that's a form of institutional gaslighting. It's not only um, denying, it's not only sort of undermining victims' um, statements of their experience, but it's, it's also erasing um, and, and instead presenting this sort of institutional, that the institution is fine, that everything is working. Even though it very well is probably not. Um, yeah. And so accepting these particular narratives is probably not going to help anything going forward. So given that you have analyzed in a lot of detail kind of what is happening with how this is being talked about um, and the problems with it, what recommendations do you have about how this topic of military sexual violence should or could be covered in the future better? Yeah, so I have a whole chapter. So the book is actually written very differently from other books I've written in the sense that I, of course, I'm I'm interested in engaging with other academics, but I'm I, I really wanted um, journalists to read this book. I wanted policymakers to read this book, and I and I have a whole chapter on sort of recommendations and really specific getting into the details. And the first one, I guess, is is really around language. Um, I think we should definitely move away from the term sexual misconduct, for example. And I, I, I mean, it may not seem important, but for me, the term sexual misconduct, um, you know, which is used in the Canadian context, was used in the Australian context, moves uh, away from sort of the legal terms of sexual violence or sexual harassment, and and sort of places sexual violence as a just another form of military misconduct rather than a, a form of violence, sort of centering victims rather than the institution. Um, I do think that language matters, and I think the way we collect data matters. So I think one of the recommendations I make is just actually connect, connect, uh, collecting better data so that um, we understand the scope of the problem, providing outlets like um, anonymous um, surveys to service members, which is a great outlet to allow um, victims to report um, sexual violence that they may not have reported formally. Um, I also provide sort of a set of media guidelines. So for example, I really um, emphasize, you know, I use the concept of rape myths and I build on um, research that was done in the civilian context to look at sort of what are the dominant rape myths, um, which would include sort of she was asking for it and, you know, women were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that work in the civilian context was really important in changing how the media covered um, sexual assault. So for example, newspaper articles now don't talk about what, what a victim was wearing. It's no longer considered appropriate. So similarly, I think based on the rape myths we have on sexual violence in the military, I think we should have different sets of recommendations that the, the media follows. So one, I don't think that uh, media coverage should center the reputation of the uh, military or the perpetrator. So this would include not mentioning the alleged perpetrator's years of service. And we see that persistently in media coverage. So 
it's sort of the good guy defense that this this I, um, emphasis on, for example, how many times a service member may have toured in Iraq um, or their rank or uh, any honors that they may have received. And rank might be useful in sort of clarifying, you know, any abuse of power, but um, how many deployments a service member um, has had certainly should not be um, referenced in a, in a media article. And again, sort of helps reinforce this idea of, of exceptionality, I think, in a way that's not helpful. Um, another uh, recommendation I make is is to not try and, and find women who do not have an experience of sexual violence and to get sort of a balanced perspective. And we see this particularly in the New York Times uh, over the years when there have been particularly high-profile cases the New York Times would often call on women to provide quotes that sort of indicate, you know, I didn't have this experience of sexual violence. Um, this is not my experience. And I think these, you know, maybe these statements are designed for sort of an alternative view, but ultimately they undermine and they gaslight victims. And they sort of perpetuate this idea that victims of sexual violence are unique or sort of um, outside of the norm. Um, another kind of recommendation I make is, is not to publish military press releases verbatim. And I know that sort of seems obvious, but sometimes, especially given the pressures of journalists right now, um, the military really uses, um, uh, the media kind of strategically. And I think it's important that um, we have good good reporters who know the military context well and can ask follow up questions and understand the full context that they ask you know talk to academics or other knowledgeable sources to sort of provide a balanced um, context to any military press release and then another sort of you know important one is to not use the term zero tolerance. And I, and I do talk quite a lot about the use of zero tolerance in media coverage and how in all three contexts, we have multi, you know, many cases in, in the Canadian context, over 40 uses of zero tolerance by senior military leaders over the course of the three decades. And these are just often after a scandal or high profile case, you have leaders come out and say, oh, we have zero tolerance. And it's a way of saying we're handling this. But actually, there is no zero tolerance policy. There's clearly no zero tolerance is, is not a thing. I mean, we, there is quite high, you know, and, and if we want to think about it that way, there's quite high tolerance. We have a lot of examples of, of a lack of accountability for, for perpetrators. And I think it's a rhetoric that gaslights victims. You know, it's, it's out of line with what victims are saying in terms of their experience of sexual violence. Um, so those are a few of the recommendations that I make. I think they're really important ones. Um, and I'm glad you highlighted the point of kind of some of the audiences that this book is for. Uh, I think there's a lot in it for academics, but definitely as well beyond that. Um, and even just that list there of things that the media can do better are really quite clear and concrete um, and therefore hopefully quite helpful to people who might be reading this. 
thankfully they can read it because the book is out. It is available for people to go get their hands on, um, which means it's off your desk. So is there anything you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, so I've been working on a few things. Um, uh, so I've actually been working with a team um, looking at the New Zealand Defence Forces, and that's another country that I've lived in, and really looking at how um, you know the, the ongoing efforts to integrate gender, um, not just integrate women into defence forces, but to really take gender seriously in terms of um, how the defense forces operate, how they, um, how they're changing their culture. So I've been working with a team there and doing really interesting surveys with, with service members and getting access to, um, you know, um, how, how things work internally. So that's been quite interesting. Uh, I've been working on a project for a very long time that I, I sort of hate to even talk about it because it reminds me how long I've been working, but essentially with, with a couple of other researchers, we, we interviewed the first cohort of women to be integrated into the U S um, U.S. infantry rules. So that was back in 2016 when when the policy changed in 2013 to allow women to fully serve and formally, officially in, in combat roles. We interviewed some members. We interviewed, I think, 22 members of the first class. And then we followed up and interviewed them each year for five years um, just to sort of see... Um, what was their experience being the first class, being you know the, new to combat roles? How were they received? Uh, what were any obstacles or successes they've had? So that's been a, a really interesting and long-term project, as you can sort of uh, imagine. And we finished the five-year, um, we finished the fifth-year interviews, and we're just sort of looking at writing that up as a book and that's that's sort of been an epic project but but one that wow. i've enjoyed and a really important one so hopefully both of those projects um might become books we can have you back and you can tell us all about them <laughs> um but while you focus on writing them up of course listeners can read the book we've been discussing good soldiers don't rape the stories we tell about military sexual violence published by cambridge university press megan thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us thanks it's been a pleasure